it's Sunday night. It's 8pm. It's still the coronavirus lockdown, which can mean only one thing. It's the return of Pop Culture Climate. With me, your host Gary, and my friend, my family, and newly demoted guest co-host, with still 50% say in the show, Daryl. Guest co-host, guest contributor. Why am I guest host for? What's going on, Gary? Well, what happened, for those that don't know, is we have a silent guest contributor, host, whatever you want to call it, called Ryan. And because of It happens to be my brother, yes? Yeah, it happens to be your brother, for those that haven't listened to our back catalogue. And you decided earlier that rather than record a show with me, you'd rather record a podcast with a famously silent contributor. And I thought, oh, okay, so if if silence is better than me, when you're being demoted, you're no longer co-host, you're guest contributor who still has 50% say in the show. As long as I have 50%, I don't mind. That's all I care about, really, at the end of the day. Well, the problem was when I sat down and I thought about it, two seconds before we decided to start recording, because that's when I found out. <laughs> when I sat down at football, I was like, I don't really have a power move to play here. <laughs> like, he's, he has equal contributory is, rights. The thing is, that podcast, we probably have to re-record it, because for some reason, doing it over the internet works better than doing it two people in person in the same room. It's weird. Most people have the opposite problem. Most people, when they're doing it remote, sounds terrible, and when mm. they're in the same room, it sounds all right. But for some reason, we were doing it in the same... I've only got one compressor mic. I think that's the problem. Condenser mic. And the other yeah, mic's I, not very good. I think that is. Although, as you said, sometimes doing it remotely, the benefit of doing it in person, if you have the mics, is obviously the chemistry. You can feed off of each other. And yeah. that's the one thing that even if you've got the, the mics, sometimes you can lose out. And so we tried Zencast, didn't we, during the week. And we tried to do a show. Yeah. And the way that Zencaster, for those that maybe they're listening to this, they're considering doing a podcast of their own during the lockdown or something like that. The problem that we discovered with Zencaster was that it records each input individually. And that yeah. can cause a delay. We're not 100% sure why. We have our theories why. But it can cause a delay, which means often you're waiting for the other person to speak, you're waiting for them to react. And that delay... It, it ruins the the natural flow uh, of conversation, yeah. and and it really and it was my opinion about five minutes into the show we were recording that it was useless that we we couldn't even put it out because we weren't even listening to each other we couldn't hear each other half the time and then you went to edit it and said yeah this can't go out this is- we've got such great chemistry that even though you knew it was going it wasn't working very well we still went on for another forty minutes. that day I was amazing and he was like this ain't working <laughs> I've always, I've always yeah, exactly. thought to myself if only Daryl had more confidence in himself you know yeah, that, that's exactly. it the reason he was working so well though is because um, he wasn't talking a lot because the timing was all out I think <laughs> oh is that what you said is that a, being a, oh hang on a second yeah exactly uh, have, I, have I sent you on the defensive by dropping you two yeah, guest yeah, contributors yeah, oh, you know it you're going <laughs> to get, you're gonna you get it although actually I do want to quickly cycle back to something you said um, and I do agree with the Rumpelstiltskin 
uh, quote, and I've often thought you look like him. So, um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it was not unique to that day, Daryl. It was not unique to that day. Is that what it was? <laughs> and that's what it was. Yeah. Very quickly, did you know that Carol Baskins, no, Carol Effin Baskins, remember this is our PGFM version of the show, yeah. <laughs> that was my way of sneaking that in <laughs> just to remind you while we are recording. Did you know she's worth 13 million? No, I did not know that. I did. Well, obviously, I... she's, she's got to be worth something because she's got all her, her dead husband's money, isn't she? So, yeah, well, he's you all, know, he's all got all gains, as it were. All got and gains, exactly. But I didn't realise that charity was so profitable. I might have to get involved. But oh yeah, no, charity, <laughs> charity is the biggest profit margin in the world because you don't be a, all you have to do is have a non-profit. So it means any profit you do make, you just pay yourself. Well, that's always been my plan for a cult. It's if the, I get a cult, yeah, it's the biggest kind of game. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I'm thinking of joining Scientology just to work out how they they worked the system. I mean, like, yeah, see, you join to. Do you know what I mean? See if there's any gaps left for me. A little wheeler dealer like me. I I should have been born in the eighties. I'd have been a real life Del Boy. You know I mean, like, I'd have made a killing, but I wasn't. Well, I was born in the eighties. What am I talking about? <laughs> I was yeah. born, what I meant is, I needed to be my age now during the eighties. <laughs> this lockdown's getting yeah. to be Daryl. I can't even remember when you could, age. when you could. Exactly, where you could wheel and deal is what you want. Use what you're trying to say. Exactly, but what I've worked out is no, what I was born with was to become a new age evangelist. Uh, oh, that's, right, okay. that's it. I mean, like the church. You have to. Go on. You have to be American, though. Oh, do you? Doesn't, it doesn't really work in England because you don't get the tax breaks. See, in America, religious gets tax breaks, but it doesn't matter what your religion is. Scientology is a religion in America. How's hmm. that a religion? It's not a religion. That's all crap. Didn't they once try to certify being a Jedi as a religion? Or have I made that up? That's right, yeah. They're trying to get it. They all signed up on the census. I think that was in England. Tried to yeah. get a religion, um, a Jedi recognised as a religion in the UK. I remember it being on the census and I wanted to put down that I was a Jedi and my mum said I weren't allowed to. I'm not entirely sure why oh, right, she okay. said well, I weren't allowed you... to. It's not like we were putting down Catholic or anything like that. Well, the weirdest thing is, on the census, a lot of people put CRE, even though they've never been to church. Like, I've been to church three times in their life, right? Two marriages and a funeral, and that's the only time they've been to church. <laughs> two, yeah, they still put CRE. So, you know, exactly. You're, like, you're not really CRE, are you? You've been to church three times in the last 20 years. There's I mean, a really weird holy... number for you to pull out. Two, two, <laughs> two marriages and a funeral. I think you could have gone with four weddings and a funeral, you know what I mean? Like, that's why I said, yeah, I was trying not to say that. That's why I was like, but by um, you not mm. saying that, it made me have to circle you, back round yeah. to it. <laughs> but look. This is the sort of chemistry. This is the sort of like amazing chemistry that we've got. Look at that. All that stuff that we just created. Exactly. The way Daryl says both, two weddings. And... <laughs> we're both rumble steel skin. We're both spinning straw mate, you, gold. You talk for yourself, mate. I, I happen to think I'm <laughs> half decent looking. <laughs> at, least, at least that's what me ever half tells me. But then we're talking about skill. We're talking about oh, the skill oh, of oh, using, skin. again, hay and skin it, and then being on the old uh, spinning wheel and making it into gold. That's what well, he's exactly. famous for. This, that is very, very true. And talking of that... But also, if you've got all the gold in the world, don't matter how ugly you are. You know what I mean? This is somewhat true. Somewhat true. You've still got to look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, no, no, and, nah, and, and look, could you could you ever really sleep with anybody knowing that there's absolutely no way if you didn't have all that gold they would sleep with you? Yes. 
Oh, right, OK. Well, that's that debate, then. That was, a, that was a very quick debate. And as, as, as I think that is, eight minutes in, we've managed to go eight minutes thing, talking thing absolutely is, nothing. If you had all that gold, if you had all that, you must have something about it, yeah, to get it, you know what I mean? People that are rich aren't just rich because they're, they're an A-type of person, and an A-type of person is going to attract that sort of person. They're going to be magnetic somehow, in some mm-hmm. way. Otherwise, they won't have that money, unless they inherited it, unless they're Donald Trump. I was gonna. I was gonna say that. I, I feel yeah. like you've been living in a, an enclosed rich bubble <laughs> yeah. because there is a there's a whole Instagram thing dedicated to rich kids who have not yeah. made the money on their own. <laughs> you know, like, they, they most definitely haven't. They have definitely got nothing about them. <laughs> nothing. But at they've all. all got good looking, significant others, though. So there you go. This is very. You, you have made a very good point, and actually, that point was so good it stretches from eight minutes to nine minutes of talking absolute <laughs> waffle to start this show. This, this is the gold waffle that people tune in for, Gary. I'm yeah, telling you this. This is it. We, we get it for the first 10 minutes. We listen to our listenership numbers. And once we get into talking anything that's factual or anything that people could learn from or take something away from, that's it. Our numbers just drop. People are like, no, we don't want finished stories. We don't want points or, or goals or, or, or things you're trying to actually say. No, we just what complete and utter waffle <laughs> golden waffles not blue waffles <laughs> not no not blue, blue waffles no, definitely not blue waffles not, well, the not potato waffles. waffles exactly and as we've got one of our hosts that looks like Rumpelstiltskin I think it makes sense <laughs> where would you go with that come and tell me Kelly. I don't, where would you I don't know. if I'm being completely honest with you I have no idea where I'm going with that other than my intense desire to get us to 10 minutes exactly of complete right, Gary, waffle before we go on. Now, uh, now, we're recording this over the internet. We are, we are, we yes. are. And yeah. we're doing FaceTime so we can see each other's wonderful faces. We are, yeah. But um, unfortunately, all I can see of you is black. Oh, yeah, because you, you can just see my elbow. That's all I can see is your elbow. <laughs> so I spent most of the time, you talking, just looking at myself going, oh, all right, Gary, yeah, you know, you're not looking too bad. You're you doing washing your hair, but you're doing all right. You probably do with washing your hair, but it's, I don't give a crap. Oh, mate, I washed my hair earlier. Look at it. To, I mean, look at how much volume is in that. Though. It's just, Jesus Christ. You know, if I went mad scientist, you'd know about it, wouldn't you? It's definitely... Yeah, uh, you look like um, Edgar Wright. You're looking very Edgar Wrighty. Am I looking very I Edgar Wright? Well, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Yeah. Yeah, look up yeah. a picture of Edgar Wright and you look like Edgar Wright at the moment. Same right. sort of hair, same sort of beard. I mean, he could grow a beard, so he was a little bit better than you, but... <laughs> oh, jeez. I really shouldn't have started this podcast by demoting you. I think that was a... I should have, I should, what I should have done was gone through the whole show, demoted you at the end of it, promoted yeah, you yeah, again yeah, before, yeah. before the beginning of the next one, demoted you at the end of it. <laughs> so, it just, yeah, you, so never, you... you never would have caught the pattern. Do you know, like, no, exactly, you, you've learned your lesson. I, I have indeed learnt my lesson. And talking of learning things, I understand that this week you've been watching something new that could teach us all a thing or two. And I did not mean to make that rhyme. <laughs> okay. I don't know if it could teach you... It might teach you a thing or two. depends how you feel about certain philosophical... Uh, philosophical? <laughs> yeah, what it could philosophical. teach you is how to say philosophical. Say philosophical, yes, exactly. Yeah. What it could teach you... So, of ideas about free will and determinism. So we're talking about devs, Gary. Have you heard of devs? I have. Uh, I, I, the knowledge I have of it, though, if I'm being honest, comes almost exclusively from you. So I feel 
somewhat weird to now explain to you what devs is when I got all that information off of you. So I want to pass it back over to you. <laughs> I mean, I can do it. You put me on the spot. <laughs> no, I don't want you to. I was going to say, you know what it is. Yeah, it's on, it's, uh, it's on BBC Two. Yep. It's, uh, it's actually an FX series. FX is a uh, network in America, for those who do not know. They show things like Justified and what we do in the shadows, uh, American Horror Story, The Americans. So nice. quite a few big sort of name for, for yeah. shows. Uh, they are they were part of Fox, but once Disney bought Fox, they got uh, FX. They didn't get oh, the Fox right. network, but they only got FX. So because now Disney own FX and they also own Hulu, this series Devs was made for. Uh, they called in FX on Hulu. This doesn't oh, really right. make any sense. No. Because, like, really. we, and it wasn't ever shown on FX, but it was shown on Hulu. So, really, it's just a FX style sort of program that's on Hulu. Okay. So, it's almost sense. like a Hulu, like a Netflix original, where it's not yeah. made by Netflix, made by somebody else, but only shown on Netflix. So, they get to call it an original. That, that kind of thing going yeah, on. A little like bit that. similar there. Yeah, I, I understand. Basically, it's got a convoluted um, distribution. That kind of like questions yeah, exactly, yeah. whose show it is. Yeah, BBC Two have got a deal with FX to show certain shows. So they've got What We Do in the Shadows and they've also got this show as well, Deb. So it's been shown on BBC Two here and it's also available on iPlayer, all of it in one go. So if you want to watch it, you can just go to iPlayer and watch all eight episodes in one go alone. Oh, tremendous. That'll take you about eight hours. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realise. I thought they were doing a, a once a week release. Oh, no, I didn't realise they were dropping the whole series. I, I think what happens is, don't quote me on this, but it's what I think. If it's shown on a network, when it's shown on a, like, so Dracula, when we got it in England, it was week mm. by week. Right. But when he went to Netflix, yeah, they got it all at the same time. Okay. So, so it's England, a case of whoever gets the, the the first rights, if you like, to show it week by week. Then after that, yeah. they can release it. Okay, so in America, the devs was shown week by week. Okay, yeah. And even though it's on Hulu, which is a you know a, a streaming network, but it was hmm. shown week on week, even though it wasn't shown on FX Earth. But when it finished, we got it. We're showing it week to week, but we also got it all on iPlayer. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I think they're saying, if we can't show it week to week, because you'll just go download it off the internet after watching the first episode, so we might as well have it all up on iPlayer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. If, yeah well, yeah. if it's been shown week by week somewhere else, there's no point in us releasing it week by week, because as soon as people although, are interested, they'll download every other episode. Although Disney Plus is showing Mandalorian week by week. Yes, they've stuck, they've stuck to the guns, which is quite surprising, really, considering everybody said that Oh, the fact that Mandalorian has come out already, nobody's going to watch it. I kind of... We all got it wrong, let's be honest here. Me and you included. We were there, we said it. Although, um, the VPN to get to uh, Disney Plus in America is very, very easy. Oh, you just, If it? you've got an American VPN, you can just watch it. So I just changed it to America. And I watched all the Imagineering, the Imagineering, the people that make all the rides in Disney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've got series as well on Disney Plus, and that's a week-to-week I just changed to America and watched it all in one go. Oh, lovely, lovely. But uh, but uh, talk about Imagineering. Imagine a future world. <laughs> hey. Very nicely done, Darren. Where Alex Garland, who is a novelist and a screenwriter now, who wrote loads of stuff with Danny Boyle. He did uh, Sunshine and 28 Days Later with Danny Boyle. 
He also yeah. wrote The Beach, which he didn't actually write the script for, but Danny Boyle made a film of. Yeah. So they've been doing that together. Now he's struck out on his own. He did the Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Ex Machina or Machina or whatever you want. I think it's Machina because it's basically machine with an A on the end. So it's Ex Machina. Yeah, but it's not English spelling, is it? See, I don't think you pronounce I, I would have said it's Ex Machina. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's Machina. Yeah. Because I think well, that we I, just I took Machina what. and we changed the A to an E. We got that A and we just spun it around and made it an E. Because obviously <laughs> it's Latin first. So Yeah. Oh, did Latin have a word for machine? I don't know. I, I would imagine Master. they did because they had machines. Machine doesn't mean robotic. Machine means no, it's machine. Not you know, like a printing press yeah. is a machine. Although, yeah. granted, that wasn't around during the time of... Well, who would have been Latin? The Romans, I suppose. Yeah. You know, is that who we're talking about? But so Danny Boyle, um, not Danny Boyle, obviously Danny Boyle was quite popular. Yeah. <laughs> and God has made Ex Machina, or Ex Machina, he's also made uh, Annihilation, and he's made Devs now. Ex Machina was a small release. He didn't really do that amazing in the box office. I don't think it went, had a wide release. No, but it did he seem did to Annihilation. get a bit of a cult following. Ex Machina, I think oh, yeah, possibly yeah. because of streaming services like Netflix, where it became quite widely available. Oh, yeah, he did uh, uh, Annihilation with the bird from Thor. <laughs> the, with, with the bird from bird. Thor. Because um, there's, there's several of them, Daryl. And um, Natalie, whether like Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman, I just, that name just went from my head. Natalie Portman, uh, she's now <laughs> Annihilation. Okay, I feel like I haven't seen Annihilation even. It went. It went straight to Netflix. They sold it straight to Netflix. Mm, that probably get, in America, it got released in the cinema, but in the rest of the world, it went straight to Netflix. That didn't do too well. No. And now he's got this new series, Devs, which is on FX. As I say, I think it was a f- idea, maybe planned for film, and then made it into a series, maybe after okay. he's seen. Okay. I think actually, it probably would work better as a series. All the stuff he's doing. Mm. I think so, they have so, better off as TV. Okay, so as you were starting to set us up, so we're in the future, if I if I remember rightly from your synopsis, Alex Scarland, yeah. uh, Scars, Scarland, Scarland, yeah, Scarland, yeah, yeah. What? I was getting cause Scars, Scarland. Yeah, every time no, you no. tell me Alex Scarland, I was going to no, say Scarland, Scarland, not Scarland, Garland, Garland, Alex Garland. That makes so much more sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's every time you say that, thinking. Well, it's got nothing to do with the scars, guys. I don't know that much. It's nothing <laughs> but... to do with that. Uh, nothing to do with Scar Lord. No, or Scar Lord. Yeah, or Star Lord. Even So, Alex Garland. Yes. He's written. Is is it a few? Is it a dystopian world? How how much? No, no. I mean, this is, is it... this is probably like five minutes in the future, really. In all honesty. Okay, so take us back to synopsis no, and tell us about. There's the no show. There's, there's no flying cars or anything, right? So. It's a, it's about, it's about, it's like a corporate conspiracy intrigue sort of, sort of kind of show. Oh, I love a bit of that. I love right, a bit. So of we that. start, we start with uh, Lily. She's an encrypted specialist. She works for a huge tech company called Amaya. Oh, so just just cover that again because I think you might have dropped out for a second. Then I just want to make sure we get that. So uh, Lily is an encryption specialist working for a huge tech company called Amaya. Oh, ooh, an encryption specialist. Nice. Okay. Okay. Very yeah, relevant so Amaya, today. Yeah, and Amaya's like a basically a Google sort of thing. It's all San Francisco. San Francisco. Amaya is like a Google competitor, basically. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And what she finds out, and she, but she doesn't believe this, that her boyfriend has committed suicide. So Lily finds out her boyfriend, but she doesn't believe it. 
But yeah, her boyfriend, his, his name's Sergey. He's a uh, quantum computer specialist. He works for the same company. He works for Maya. Right, yep. And he, he's, he's, working, he's working his way up. He's getting up in the world and he's found a way to map how a nematode moves. You know a nematode? It's like a single seal organism. It's like a little worm thing. Oh, right. I don't know and what it is, but I'll take your word. I've seen little worms under the microscope, so I can picture yeah. it. He's basically used quantum mechanics to figure out its movements. Okay. So he can map the movements before it moves at exactly the same time. Uh, they can't do it ten. They try to do it ten seconds, but it falls apart. But he's managed right. to get it to work virtually. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he can tell the movements. So this gets him a chance to join Debs, which is their Amaya Secret Skunk Works. Amaya Secret Skunk Works. So you know what, what skunk you... work is, didn't you? No, I don't. Please elaborate. A skunk's work is like a secret part of a company where they're testing new technology. Okay. It's you separated from the do you air gap or separated from the rest of the company and sort of kept in secret. Like iPhone was a skunk works at one point, you know what I mean? Before it was uh, a, the rest okay, of the company yeah. was in, it was off its own, doing its own little thing that not many people know about. So you can't get leaks. Ah, the more you know, eh? The more you know. Yeah, so but now he's finally managed to join Debs and the day he does this, at the end of his day, he goes off into the company grounds by a giant statue of a, a child. Right. Because basically the, 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 the bloke who runs the corporation, his name is Forrest, his daughter died oh, okay. in a car crash. And so he named the company after his daughter, Amaya, and he yeah. built a giant statue of her that's coloured in. So it's like a giant doll-sized version of Amaya. And it just stands on the grounds above all the trees. That's a bit freaky. <laughs> it is a bit freaky, yes, yeah. exactly. But he goes there, and it's all caught on CCTV. He covers himself in petrol and sets himself alight. What? Yes. This now is the boyfriend, at this yeah? Pitch. Yes. Now, she's looking at this and she's going, well, this can't be right. Why would the day he joins Dev, the things he wanted to do, why would he just go outside and set himself on fire? No, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. There's certainly some intrigue no. there. But, of course, we all know, because we've watched it and we get told, that's not what happened. No, of course not. <laughs> of course. No, that's not. Of course that's it's not. That's and they're also working for a tech company where they can probably influence images. Yes, exactly. So that's the inciting incident. That's what starts her off investigating what exactly happened to her boyfriend and what is Dev's. So would I be right in assuming, based on what you've told me so far, so is Lily our, our main character? Yeah, she's the protagonist, basically. Okay. So the fact you think that... You, it starts off, you think it's De you think it's Sergei because it's focusing on Sergei's day at the beginning of it. Right, so. yeah. Okay, and then it, it quickly splits to Lily. And I'm assuming yeah, Nick Offerman... Dead. He's he's one of the members of the dev team. He's Forrest. He's the leader. He's the he's CEO. the leader of the dev team. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. He's the leader of the whole to... company. He's, he's oh, oh, he's, he's, he's the leader of the whole company. So yeah, he's, he's the one. He's who's the man died. who's yes. His name uh, is Forrest. Okay, okay. So he's called Forrest. So if I if I'm getting this right, and this is my assumption from the off, Lily is not part of the devs team. Is that right? No, no, no. So no, the dev team, as I say, is a skunk's work inside. Yeah, so is Inside there a, Amaya. it seems to me that maybe almost like that Area of 51 thing, if you look at that Bob Lazar, not that I'm necessarily saying I believe him, but one of the things that, that they do there is remove your existence. I mean, like, so if this department isn't supposed to exist, well, and you've got somebody you're dating who works for this company, we can hardly have you turning up every day and saying, oh, yeah, I'm just going to a department that doesn't exist to work on a programme. No, 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 everyone knows, everyone... About. 
everyone knows it exists. Everyone knows that devs ah. exist, but the people who work there don't talk about it. They yeah. make a decision earlier on not to talk about it themselves. He said, I can't tell you anything. She said, I don't want to know. Okay. Okay. What so that's, goes on there? That's the, the setting, the premise, if you like, how we get yeah. set up. Tell, tell me a bit more about then what happens in the show. Right. So what happens in the show is obviously he, this is his idea, and this is spoilers. Yeah. This so anybody episode, listening so this... that wants to watch it, maybe pause this now. Go watch the eight episodes, come back and listen to the no, no, sultry just watch voices. The first, you can just watch the first episode because this is all in the first episode. This, oh, is the, okay, uh, this is the inciting incident. So, of course, spoilers, he did murder <laughs> it. He didn't set himself on fire. He was murdered. Oh, oh that is a spoiler. If, if you haven't guessed, his name's Sergei. He's Russian. Oh, yeah. yeah so he's actually sense. a Russian <laughs> spy. Oh. Slightly been... in devs. Oh. And so he, where he got to devs, he started to steal some oh, code. I think I lost you for a second. Then what happened when he started at devs? He said when he started at devs, he stole some code. Oh, so who did he tell that to? No, Forrest, Forrest and uh, his, his uh, partner in the devs company, uh, Katie, played by Alison Peel. Right, okay, yep. Who's, who's last seen on uh, Picard, played a sort of similar sort of role, like a scientist role. Yeah. It seems Type to be past. her partner. She's yeah, she's now a female scientist person <laughs> with dubious morals. So <laughs> dubious morals, I love it. So they yeah, so they found out he stole it and so they murder him. They get right. their head of security to put a bag over his head and choke him to death. Okay, that's one way then to get rid make of people. A, then they they move the body to where they uh I said underneath the big girl. Yeah. And set him on fire and then change it to make it look like he murdered that he'd killed himself okay that's a lot to unpack and this is all in the first episode that is the first basically that is the first episode yes okay and then where where do we go off from there then feel free to to throw spoilers out there because i think right so so basically what happens is now she's trying to because she why would he murder himself she's thinking to herself so she goes to find her old boyfriend yeah she shows him the video of him being set alight and the boyfriend goes, oh, you can see these two bits of fire. Uh, is that the same? Oh, he's caught the photo so shop. Is, so, well, yeah, it's video. But at the same time, yeah. you're like, this is the biggest company in the world. They must have a better program for making particle accelerators so the flames will look exactly the same next to each other. They look like they copy and pasted. I was like, right, so you've got to believe that this head of the CEO, yeah? Yeah. And his and his partner and head of security just murdered some guy, even though they seem to already know that he was Russian, and a spy. Because they even asked him in his interview, "Are you a Russian spy?" And he said, "No." Uh, so they kind so of already knew this. <laughs> yeah. So why did you start do something as sloppy as to murder him? And then so that whole, the whole, he had to be murdered a bit sloppy so she can find out that he was murdered, basically. Hmm. If you get what I'm saying? For it to, yeah, for they it needed to, to leave. To start. They, they needed to be sloppy, otherwise there wouldn't be loose hens for her to find. There wouldn't be Fine, clues. exactly. Yeah. But they're a tech company. They obviously can do better than this. Feels so, like you've got a little <laughs> bit of guns akimbo going on here, Daz. Yeah. I mean, but that's the, that's the one thing that's sort of getting me, is like, how could they be that sloppy? You know what I mean? They're a massive tech company. These two bits of fire match exactly. These two flames, one's there and one's there, and they're both moving at the same time. I was like, 
come on. There's got to be a better way of doing it in this. Where, where's the, the expression I'm looking at for, for there? Like plot devices, I suppose? Is, plot is the contrivance. Right... Yeah, plot contrivance. That is, that is it, exactly. And, and unfortunately, when you... That's the problem is when you're creating something as smart as that and you try to ground it in reality, unfortunately, you're asking people to do the same. And they go, well, it's, this, it's the problem me and you have spoke about in films for the last decade is the problem with, especially with murder and things like that, kidnapping, intrigue is everybody's got a smartphone now. So that instantly takes away the likelihood, like, how many people have got trackers on their phone? I mean, like, yeah. you, you uh, something. In devs, so, you're, not allowed to, you're not allowed to take your phone into devs, obviously. Well, so. that's a good little way around it. I like that. Like, devs, is, devs is a building out in the middle of nowhere on their land, and when you get to it, there's an air gap, so there's like an eight-foot gap that is uh, a vacuum, so you can't get through it. You have to get in a little transport that uses electromagnets to take you to the other side. Oh, that's pretty impressive. Because you obviously, if you went into a vacuum, you'd die. So okay. you can't do that. Well, look, I don't want to go into so, the the sort of the plot too much um, because no, I think, no, I mean, that's a much plot. I mean, yeah. I'll tell you the first episode. I think that's I've always said spoilers, but if it's the first episode, I don't really want to tell you everything that happens. But I will tell you a main theme. Mm-hmm. So the main theme is self determination versus free will. Well, not self determination, determination versus free will. Elaborate. So a determination bit more means. For determination means everything's. Determination is the idea that you have no choice. That everything you everything that happens happens for a reason, and it's the only choice you're ever going to make. So, like for you example, no when will. we decided to do our recording at eight o'clock, we there was never a choice on the table. We were always going to do our recording. You were at always going to do recording. Yes, exactly. Yep. Despite the fact because, that we had all the hours in the day. Yes, exactly. You're always going to do it. But also, if you was going to do it any other time, you would have done it at that time. Exactly. You could only have one. There's only one choice. So once that choice is made, it's set in stone. Yeah. But the idea of determination is when you get to that when you get to that choice, you've already made it. Part of your subconscious has already done it. You never yeah. had a choice. You could never do anything else. Yeah. But you we can always, always say that. Theorise, didn't we, with the, the, the supermarket and the buying fruit? Because you have a, a convenience shop next to you that used to sell a lot of fruit, like you know, hundred, yeah, yeah. hundreds of different fruit. And we always just theorise that despite there being a hundred options, when you walked in there, the piece of fruit that you would buy was always the same piece of fruit because you'd made your mind up before you went in there. The other choices were always there before you had even made your mind up. So you'd made the choice yeah, already. You know, like just so no okay so that that's but, but really... there's a weird philosophy there's a weird but there's also a weird philosophical thing that you can only ever make one choice so what does it matter your cho- the that's choice true. you made if the choice you made is the choice you made it's but it's, you could only ever make you can't you can't pick up an apple and then a part of you goes back and picks up another apple mm. well that's the many wheels theory isn't it like every single time you make a decision every time there's a thought well, that was what I was about to say is that and I think that's there are obviously those who believe in that theory that one, any choice you make, you're always going to make the same choice. But then there are also those who believe in exactly that, the many world, the multiverse, whatever you want to call it theory, where it's saying that actually every choice you could make feasibly, you do make in some form of existence. So there is a version of you that every time a choice is presented, you make every possible choice and you splinter off into your own separate timeline from there. 
I believe, if I'm being honest with you, both of those are concepts beyond <laughs> my ability to, to to truly explain. But that's what I'm saying. But so determination can only be the true one because there can't be that many worlds because it'd be no. infinite and it'd be ridiculous and nothing would ever get done. <laughs> no, the way that it's, so there can only well, be one world. If there so is... if there's only one world. But so, so the idea of the show is determinism. I think that's one of those things that people get weirded out about, the idea that they haven't got any free will, that everything's been decided for them. The, the, the matter of existence, the whole existence is mapped out for them and there's no free will and there's no choice. But at the end of the day, it's a matter. If every choice in that step you took was good, what's it matter if it was already predetermined? Nothing, really. It's just, it's just one of those weird things about free will. I don't, it's like a philosophy idea and I'm not too much into it. So, <sighs> But because I'm not... Because I'm not into determinism, because I'm, I am a determinist and because I already believe in determinism, mm. it doesn't freak me out. And I think as it might do other people. And I don't think about it because I'm just like, well, no, I'm a determinist. I've already thought about this. I've already gone through all this in my mind. Yeah. So outside so of... Other... Go on, sorry. You, you go ahead. No, no, no. I say, so, so other, other people, they may have heard other people review it and they go, oh, it makes you think about this and that. I'm like, well, no, not really, because I've already thought of all that out. <laughs> A lot of... A lot of, and, I'm, and this is Alice Garland, I'm, a lot of his ideas, people are like, oh, no, it's so amazing. I was like, it's, this, you're sounding like someone who likes Black Mirror, who thinks Black Mirror's amazing, who's never seen the Twilight Zone. These are all ideas we've had before. If you've ever thought anything about science fiction, you know, all these big ideas, I mean, it's like people to go, oh, what if the blue you see is not the same blue as I see? Oh, that's amazing. They go, no, who cares? It's not amazing. That's just being called colourblind. And you say, we'll, ne we'll never know if the blue you see and the blue I see is different things. But even if, if they are, that doesn't matter. We both see it as blue. We both appreciate it as blue. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. These philosophical, philosophical ideas, uh, they just don't hit me the same way. And also, there's a lot of, a bit of godly in it as well, a bit of spirituality, a bit of... Yeah, which obviously I mean, other stuff like the god right with you. Deus, you know what I mean? And yeah, the godly machine. But I must say, I do like the direction. I like okay. the way it's shot. It's, Shot on digital, very like big lights and you know, it's good natural, cinematography, like, good direction. It has it's slow because it's an Alex Garland, and Alex Garland likes things to be slow because yeah, he thinks slow and ponderous is profound. <laughs> would it not? <laughs> no. If we do it, if we do slow panning shots over weird <laughs> music, then people yeah. go, "Oh man, this is making me think." But I was like, do you, is this just, do you have to be stoned to watch this and appreciate it? I did quite like it, but at the same time, I was like, I have seen up, if you want to see something that is a head mess up, yeah, that yeah. will make your brain go weird and wonderful, yeah. and it's hard to, Upstream Colour by Shane Carruth. Upstream that's the show colour. you want to, yeah. Upstream Colour by Shane Carruth. Now that's what you want to be watching. That is one of my favourite sci-fi films of all time. And that is mind-bending. That is crazy. Upstream Colour. I'm going to have to check yes. that out. You... Yeah, Shane Carruth, he did, uh, also did Primer. Okay, yeah. Have you heard about Primer? I have. Yes, yeah. Primer is the... the, so... the... We discussed this. We discussed Upstream Colour. We did, because this Primer yes. is the, the, the time travel one, the really in-depth, yes, complex one. Upstream yes. Colour was his long-awaited sequel to that. Uh, and then I think, isn't he working on one at the moment or is supposed to be working on one It's taken yeah, a long it's, time? Yeah, it's, well, I don't even know it's coming out and I don't know if he's going to be continuing on film. There's a lot of stuff saying he may not even finish that film. Okay. Modern Ocean, it's called. 
Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we definitely discussed this on the on the show before. Yeah, yeah. I, I have but got it in my list. If you need to watch Upstream Colour, just because that, that's a mind-bending film, that's a film that makes you think about things, about memory, about ideas, about to being together, about humanity, about Ooh. just thought itself. That's a well, it, that's a film that will it make intrigued you think. me last time. It's definitely got me intrigued this time. Mindful of the time, because we do want to get Comic Corner in, because the audience is demanding a return of the Comic Corner, and we have got the return of Top of the Flops coming in the second part of the show. Would you would you recommend this show? Yeah, if you've never if you've never thought about anything like determinism or free will before, that's never played your brain, and you don't even know what determinism is. Yeah, go ahead and watch it. You might enjoy <laughs> it. I don't know. Okay. Did you enjoy? I still, it? I did like it. I mean, I watched all of it, but still, I'm never on board completely with Alex Garland's some of Alex Garland's ideas. I always think he always falls at maybe the last hurdle or the first hurdle. Maybe there's always like. Ex Machina, one's going, oh, brilliant. I was like, yeah, it's good, but so, yeah. people think like these ideas are amazing, but sometimes I think they're a little bit rehashed and a little bit warmed over. But maybe a little that's bit just too me. pretentious for, for their own good. Uh, I, I often well, find it reminds well, me of that scene yeah. Good Will Hunting where, where he's talking to the guy in the bar and the guy starts reciting literature to him and he's like, well, have you got any of your own independent thoughts or are you just going to regurgitate? You know what you've what you've been told, and I think that we do find that sometimes if somebody comes up with a really interesting point, and then you'll see five, six, seven movies all roughly similar. It's like, yeah, I kind of got it with the first one. I don't need to keep going over this same point. Um, no, I'm just big into sci-fi concepts. So any concept he's sort of can come up with, unless it's really, I mean, most of his concepts I've already thought about, I've already seen, I've already written a story in my own brain about them at some point. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. They're not, and also, not too dissimilar. And also, yeah, he's a bit. I think it pretentious is in the fact that the idea isn't that amazing, but the way he's presenting it tries to make it a little bit more like, oh yeah, it's a bit. Okay. It's like well, low grade Chris Nolan. That's the reason I don't like Chris Nolan as well sometimes. <laughs> okay. So, so low grade Chris Nolan. I think we're going to have to tie this one so we can get the comic corner in. Have ourselves a little break. If you are interested in something that's going to stretch your mind, if you haven't done this exercise already, give devs a go. If you're looking for an easy watch and you want to know what it's like to be a Korean family running a convenience store in Canada, then give Kim's Convenience a watch. That's what I've been watching this week, Des. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, so it's, just a, it's, it's about a Korean couple or Korean family living in Canada. They've got a Korean, they've got a convenience shop. The dad is basically Homer Simpson of the series, if you know what I mean. Like, he's not an idiot, okay. but he's the show. You know what I mean? Like, he's the star of the show. Without a shadow of doubt, go check it out. Check out Devs, and we'll be back after this break with Comic Corner. All right, that's we're back from the break. Unless I'm mistaken, I think it's time for Daryl's Comic Book Corner. Well, yes, it is, Gary. Yes, it is. And uh, you'll be looking forward to this one because this is a thing you'll really love. I'm, I'm guaranteeing ooh, it. Ooh, no, like, do you know what? You, I genuinely you really like. I know you really like the, the pig, sexy pig one. That was your favourite out of all of them. You like How, did you know? <laughs> How did you know? How did you know? Was it in my yeah. eyes? Could you tell? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But um, unfortunately, 
Dale, there's nothing sexy about this one. Why? Oh, there is something sexy. There's an oh. alien, but we'll talk about that later. Oh, um, okay. So this week, <laughs> this okay. week, Gary, we're going to be doing the we're going to be doing profit, not the profit, profit, oh, profit. And, okay, what? So and, that that thing you get when you start a business and you sell things for more money than you bought. Them. No, no, oh, no, Jesus oh. Christ. Oh, no, well, there's no need to get irate about it. I just got it wrong. <laughs> what, what do you mean by profit then? Jesus Christ, Gary. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes, like Jesus Christ, that, that sort of profit. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we're going to go with that that profit, yeah? <laughs> no, we're not going yeah, to mention any other profits. Yeah, exactly. This is a kind of... Yeah, exactly. This <laughs> yeah, is a weird term for me because all of a sudden I've gone from an atheist but now I'm going to talk about a comic book exclusively about Jesus Christ. Well, let's go for it. Let's go for yeah, it. I, no, I, I want to hear about how he became a superstar. Exactly. <laughs> Not about Jesus Christ. Right, so The Prophet was a uh, OG image comic. Okay, We're what do you mean by OG? Com- as in like an like, original Im- image comic? Yeah, Is that what you're, original yeah, okay. gangster. Oh, you do mean, okay, I just wanted to make sure we were on the same page. <laughs> have you not seen it? Like on MTV now, they've got a Jersey Shore OG... Georgie oh, yeah, yeah. Shore OG, OG Team OG. Just... <laughs> it's the new word, like, it's a word that we've been using for years that MTV have only just picked up anyway. So <laughs> yeah. back in the back in the early 90s, yeah. this is OG image comics, we've been talking about, we've talked we've mentioned image comics a couple of times. We have, yeah. I mean I, I might have to do a, a comic book corner just talking about image comics at some point. I'd very much enjoy but, that. That'd be good. So yeah, anyway, so the profit, or well, profit, was a uh, comic book published by Rob Liefeld's imprint Extreme. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry if that hurt anybody's ears, but it was extreme. My face. My eyes. Look at your face. Anyway, he was a he was a typical '90s hero. If you yeah. if you want to just Google Rob Liefeld Extreme, you'll see what I mean. He's got okay. a face mask. He's got a face mark. He had guns. He had pouches. He had big swords. Oh, all the, sounds interesting. All the nineties sort of Rob Liefeld tropes. This geezer was it all packed into one hero. Okay. So, but but it wasn't originally. He wasn't that exciting. People didn't really go for him. Really, the only thing he had going for him, yeah, is if you read his origin, he's basically the Marvel. He's basically the Winter Soldier. Okay. So he's, he's conflicted. He's, in a, he's got amnesia. He's been used as a weapon. That yeah, but this thing. came out before the Winter Soldier. This came out in the nineties, and the Winter Soldier didn't come out until the two thousands. Oh, okay. So, so this could have been a, a precursor to the Winter Soldier, maybe even where yeah, they got the idea it, from. The, yeah, Profit was like a super soldier, and he puts an ice, and he comes back again. And it's called Profit because they is still a uh, Christian sort of uh, mentality into his mind, making believe in God to stop him from turning bad. Okay, so so they make him believe that he's a prophet that's been brought to them. Uh, or that he's working for a profit. No, I didn't read the original series, so I don't know if they make him. But he's he's a bit. They make him a bit more. Put a bit of godliness into him, stop him going because he was being used as a bad guy, basically. Oh right. But that's about as about, about as interesting as it gets. <laughs> okay. He yeah. had he had two series. They never really sold that well, even yeah. though it was Rob Liefeld. You know what I mean? The guy sold two million, or was it five million? Two million copies of X Force One. I, I don't know what you mean, but I do trust what you mean. So if you tell me that I mentioned he's it in the, with... I mentioned it in the comic book corner of uh, X-Force, the original X-Force, when Bob mm. Liefeld took, was, started it, mm. the first issue was the best-selling comic book of all time. You did, he sold yeah, you two, did. Mi- too many issues. So when he went to him, he sped in the same sort of sales, but, you know, Profit never really sort of caught on. 
But then in the like in the 2010s, Rob Liefeld, yeah. long story short, he'd left Image. He'd been away for a while. He'd come back to Image. He's like, I'm going to relaunch some of my books. One of the books he decided to relaunch was Profit. And people are going, oh, you're that character that none of us can remember, that no one's really a fan <laughs> of. You know yeah. what I mean? Like... No one was screaming out for a profit reboot. No one was going, you know what? I hope he yeah. brings back profit. No one. No one said that. I say no one said it. Some weirdo may have said it, but yeah. they were weirdo. We don't, you know, we don't talk, talk to the weirdos. No. So anyway. <laughs> we are the weirdos usually, aren't yeah, we? Like, yeah, yeah, we're not the weirdos who want profit back. So basically, he's like, I'm going to bring profit back. And I was like, all right. And then he showed us how he was going to do it. And boy, did it go left field. You know what I mean? Lifefield went left field on this one. Went, oh, nice. <laughs> so he got a he got a uh, writer yeah, illustrator in. Yeah, how's okay. he gone left field? What what made? Yeah, it we left got field? a we got a writer illustrator in called Brandon Graham, who had done sort of a weird anime cartoony sort of books. One called Mega Warheads. All right. They were kind of weird and strange and sci-fi, but also kind of sexy as well. Kind, kind of weird and sci-fi, kind, kind of, of sex. sex. Uh, that, that kind of sounds up your street, to be fair. Yeah, but really, like, yeah, they were really weird, like really, like uh, really hyper stylized, cartoony sort of style drawings. Yeah. So, so like, you know, I you mean, know, even like more than anime, like oh, wow. more stylized more anime than anime, than like, anime. Really bubbly, yeah, really like roundy, sort of uh, like underground, um, like the underground cartoons from the seventies or eighties, sort of that sort of mm. look. Maybe yeah. but a little bit prettier. So he got him in to start writing it, and he brought in a set of rotating artists: uh, Simon Roy, Faldin Rimple, and this one's going to be a bit of a mouthful: Giannis Milo Giannis, who's obviously Greek because he's got Milo in his name. Right. So Milo. Janis Milo the Janis My Milo No Janis. Right. Okay. O G and then the same again. I, I, I I lost you after the first two letters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a that's a that's a name. If I ever saw one, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a name. It's definitely yeah. that. Exactly. But, so, but in okay. this series, it, it starts off with him waking up. He's been put on ice before. He's come back. He's been put out of ice again. <clears throat> yeah. But not. But now he finds himself not on Earth anymore, but in the far future, in a faraway place. Oh, okay. How far into the future? A lot far into the future. I mean, this Ooh. is like hard, weird sci-fi. Now, for some reasons unknown to only Rob Liefeld, they decided to continue the series from the previous uh, numbering, which was okay. twenty-one. Okay, so it starts at. So this starts. Yeah, this 20. starts at profit. Profit new season starts at twenty-one. Now, if you was going to read this as a complete line. Imagine you didn't know that, you mean, in the future, <laughs> yeah. 100 years from now, you go, oh, the profit, let's see what this is. 21, big 90s, over-extreme, gun-toting weirdo. Yeah. Then when you get to 21, it goes so far off the deep end and so weird and so crazy and so fantasy and so just amazingly, you have to look the up the art between what happened from the original profit yeah. to what happened in profit 21, how profit 21 starts. And I mean... I cannot stress this enough. Yeah. This new profit series was crazy. 
So well, it starts well, I mean, off with this. Yeah, I was going to say. So far, it's it's in the future. It's in space. It's gone all sci-fi on us. We've yes. still got the elements of the original of him being woken up. But from this the is not like when those like the amazing like science fiction futures where things clean in and there's massive, great big satellites yeah. and towers and skyscrapers and everything's made out of melt. No, he's woken up. This place is a desert. Ooh. It's full of weird-looking aliens that look like genitalia for most of the time. <laughs> he, joins a, he joins a caravan, and in this caravan is these giant monster slug things walking through the desert. One, one does a poop. The other one in front of it, <laughs> behind it, eats that poop, oh. and then poops out again. Then the one behind it, they keep uh, eating the different poop until at the end we find it into a product that they can sell. Oh, okay. I didn't see yeah. that coming. I'm saying you have to look at the art. You have to see that. And you're like, what the heck is... And it is crazy. And where was this that's made, not, sorry? This is um, in the 2010s. This wow. is such a depa- I'm saying this is such a departure from everything that happened before Profit. Like you're going, yeah. really? This should just be called something else? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this has these, any resemblance to whatever happened before. Yeah. But, as I said before, he's got four different artists. You did, yeah. You, you gave us all their names, um, one of them very hard. Yeah, yeah. Brandon Graham being the other artist, I don't think I mentioned, but he's still the artist as well. Oh, he's okay. the writer in the eyes. But each individual artist, it turns out that he's not alone, this prophet. There are other prophets. Okay, other clones. people that have been on our oh, 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 clones of him? They, 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 yeah, they cloned this prophet and then cloned him and put him in different places and they're all waking up sort of different times. So every artist takes off a different clone of Prophet. So what artist oh. you get is that's the that Prophet storyline. Oh, and each of them has a different story. Each of them has a different storyline. Each of them was uh, woken up in a different place. And each yeah. of them's got a different sort of mission. That's quite interesting. It's almost sounding like, well, look, you've got the stock character. You all get to start with this. Then you get to take it wherever you like. That's quite interesting because we talked about devs, which was... Obviously, talking about you know determin- uh, determinism and, and and the fact yeah, that yeah. you know there is no such thing as choice. Whereas in the the comic, and I feel like you've, I'm almost starting to get a feeling that like you might pick these two deliberately here, Daryl. You know, maybe I'm giving you too much credit. Yeah, yeah. In the comic, too much, you, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right, I was going to say because the comic you pick is all about multiple choices. What if I mean, like, so you've got four artists. It's like, all right, you've all got the same character to work with. Let's go see what you can do. But right, the funny thing intriguing. is, they're all written by they're all written by the same guy. Brandon ah. wrote every single character, but they just started in different places. Yeah, I think I was getting ahead of myself there because when we did the Jack Kirby episode, I was starting to I'd forgotten that artists don't necessarily write the stories anymore. Exactly. <laughs> also, this is in the same comic book, so every issue you yeah. get the issue. If you see what the artist on the issue, you know what storyline it's going to be. So, yeah, so he does He does at least tie in the storyline with the artist so that it, it makes sense in that regard. Yeah, you And the main, the main two storylines are the Simon Roy storyline and the uh, Giannis Myogenes storyline. They're the sort right, of big two. They're the longest out of all the three of them, out of all the four of them. Um, Brandon Grand, the writer, he's one being the shortest. Right. So I'm just now going to tell you a little bit about the art. And... It's hard to try to explain to art without showing people it what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure we're on the I mean, right medium very, for this. Yeah, exactly. It's very, I mean, I've done it on the other comic called I know you have, I know you But like, like, um, once, some of the ones I've suggested before, like uh, Crowded and Unnatural, both are really sort of pretty 
really mm. like you know what i mean really oh, nice yeah. art you know you could say they're beautiful like and pretty and cute this is the opposite this is <laughs> ugly it's set in space as i said simon roy's art is really like intricate things but he tends to make things look like genitals maybe there's a there's an underlying yeah, no, reason for there's that one, there's one alien you're looking at going um that looks like something <laughs> did it remind you of a yeah, scene like, from super bad yeah, there's the it, little there, kid <laughs> drawing the drawing the penises over and over again in all different scenarios. You're like, oh, that's yeah, what not, that kid ended up doing for a living. <laughs> not only penises. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure it's not exclusive. To penises, yeah, I mean, but... so that's what he style, but it's also really sort of rough looking. It's kind of it's half cartoony, half rough looking. Everything's really washed out. As I said, there's no skyscrapers or glittering. This future is not a pretty future. This future mm. is like a post-apocalypse future that's gone across the world like it feels like it's almost like mad max back to future stop... yeah mad max future but it's on alien worlds and everything is so not only is it that sort of weird desert my max field but it's also very alien and very yeah. very strange You'd... so so if, if john carter it... on mars was a comic book and was decent this could be it <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's almost. Yeah, this is like. Yeah, probably. I mean, called John. <laughs> so then, so that was as I say. Simon Boy's art is very. Um, Barrel's art is very quite similar to Simon Boy's, but he's a bit more Conan. He's a little bit more fierce. He's his prophet has a tail. Right. Okay. Has a tail. And uh, yeah, has a tail. Yeah, and he's more. <laughs> He's one that's more Conan the Barbarian, like maybe. Oh, okay, that might be a bit of me then. That one. That so he's one like that. Then you have a uh, Janice. Janice's art very rough and sketchy, but it also feels a lot like eighty cyberpunk, like Pat Labor or Ghost in the Shell, Bubblegum Crisis. Yeah, which he is definitely something vibe. I'm a fan of. If you look at Janice Malopolis on um, uh, Tumblr, you'll see a lot of his art. A lot of his art is very. Um, much like the artist from Ghost in the Shell, Maro Mura Cherichia, I think his name is, yeah. So he's very similar to that. But it also fits in with the same style as everybody else's, where it's very sort of desert and very scratchy looking. Yeah. And then, and he's my favourite because I like that sort of art. He's got a bit of European in it as well, just to make it a, lot less, a little bit less mangry. But my favourite art style is that sort of cyberpunk 80s yeah. manga style. Pat Loba, Ghost in the Shell, Bubblegum Crisis, Akira. They're my sort of favourite kind of anime. If you ask me what I like, it's cyberpunk anime. I can't. That's just my favourite thing. Oh yeah, if 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 there's no mechs in an anime, then uh, yeah, you're like, gonna need an awful lot of big boobs to uh, make up for yeah, it. Yeah, te- technology, robots, boobs. That's my. Yeah, sunglasses. They're not existing. <laughs> yeah, someone has to wear sunglasses with like the purple lines in them. You know what I mean? Okay. So so this series then it's called Profit, and yes. is it? It's had four sort of separate runs if you like based on the artist have they all are they all no, no, finished no, no, now no. they got, concluded it's there's it's because they're not just it's interwoven so it'd be three issues of one artist one issue of one artist two issues of another artist three issues of another artist goes back and forth I see what you're saying now. Yeah, I get it now, yeah. so, so, so uh, issue 22 to 24 could be one artist but then 25 yes. to 26 is, is another exactly. one but that's, those stories exactly are connected Yes, yeah, so there's different profits, but they're all the storylines will merge together and come together in the end. There's five uh, trade paperbacks. Don't worry about the profits before. You just want these profits. They okay. are crazy. They are off, off the wall, and they are, I'm talking like big, hard, crazy sci-fi. Like, 
I mean, this is this is for people who like their sci-fi, weird and wonderful, almost psychedelic, almost like Conan the Barbarian. Like, if you like that sort of thing, check it out. You'll be looked to me. You'll go to me. Why did you suggest this, Daryl? This is mental. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but you got to have a little bit of mental, I think. Well, I think so, and also I think you know you need a bit of a palate cleanser. I, I, as you know, don't read an awful lot of comics. I love the stories. I love hearing about them. I don't get as much time as I'd like. When I do, I tend to not read superhero-based comics, or certainly not what you'd call your strict superheroes, like your Superman or your Spider-Man, things like that. I kind of I prefer things like the Runaways, for example, and stuff like that, where it's a little bit more off-kilter, a little bit, you know, the ones you've showed me, unnatural, for example, crowded. You know, I look at those and go, yeah, I I much prefer those kind of stories because they're more grounded in reality for me. Don't get me wrong, I love. My superhero ones, but I prefer it when, you know, let's face it, the most boring thing about Superman is the fact that he can't, you know, he's Superman. He can't be stopped. Yeah, exactly. You know, and how do you how do you reverse that? Well, you've got to try and ground him more in reality. Well, then, you know, I haven't got time for that. I'd rather read a comic that starts that way. You know, you know, or certainly, if it's not grounded in reality, it's not just superheroes. Send me across the other side of the galaxy. You know, like, give me Conan Barbarian meets Steampunk. Give me all of that. They're like, from what you're telling me, this sounds like a perfect palate cleanser. To have you watched Zadowski's uh, Dune, the documentary? I have not. No, no, I've not. That's, I have seen is... the two films of Dune. Yeah, well, he was going to do a film called, about Dune, and he never got to make it. But all the artists he got on board to do—that's what they said. Because why is he so important? He said, well, all the artists he got to do work on it before they got made to like sort of pre-visit back in the day you'd get an eye to sort of draw it to see how it feels like mobius and other people yeah all those people went off and did other sci-fi sci-fi films afterwards and they're the way they drew and the way they think bought the sci-fi so you know what i mean ah, so, so like, like one of the people who worked on uh that dune was the yeah. guy jay um hr geiger who made aliens ah so it's all, all so that's sort of influenced sci-fi quite funny how you should mention that because June's never been a particularly successful film I know they've tried a few times and it's interesting that the film that wasn't successful spawned many other successful individuals or indeed companies a little bit similar to what we're going to be doing for Top of the Flops today oh yeah we've got Top of the Flops Gary we've brought it back we have not released part two of. Uh... <laughs> we have not released part two of, of Jack. We do have it. I believe it's fully edited. Didn't I send it to you? Finished, I think maybe, or, or I don't know. I need to look. No, at you it. didn't, Gary. No, we, you didn't. We will get it out within the next seven days. Jack Kirby's part two, where we actually look uh, at Jack Kirby's uh, fourth world, and uh, yeah, so so that's going to be coming out. But today we're doing Sega. And as I said, it's interesting. Sega! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, it's interesting, um, as I said, that you'd mention that because what, what I like to do is, is I, we like to do top of the flops. We like to find a narrative. You know, and what's narrative? And the topic of conversation we're going to look at with Sega today is the Sega Saturn. Probably their most well-known flop. But I wouldn't necessarily call it 
their biggest flop. And and I looked at it and I thought, well, where's the story here? And I have been, I must admit, Darrell, as you as you are well aware and digging in your bag, which is coming from the mic, lovely for our for our audience. Uh, as as you're aware, Darrell, I've been sort of basing. Do not eat while you're <laughs> okay. Let's do it. So uh, of course, Daryl's big thing is to try and throw me off my game when I'm leading a segment. And as everybody knows, I hate it when he eats. <laughs> so what he's decided to do is to eat in front of me. But it doesn't matter. Because what I like to do is I like to find the narrative. And I've been racking my brains now for a few weeks. What is the narrative behind the Sega Saturn? And as you know, I started going through the history. And I will give people a bit of history, a bit of foundation to understand the landscape in which the Saturn came out into. But I was trying to find, well, what happened? How did they go... And they were market leaders, Sega, you know, worldwide market leaders. How did they go from that to no longer producing consoles after their very next console? What happened? How did it go so wrong? And I think I found the narrative. And I think the narrative is this. Right, OK. Now, you have a, a brother. So you, maybe you can, you can associate this. I have a brother, I have siblings, and anybody out there that has siblings might be able to, to relate to this. But I think Sega suffered with the jealous sibling syndrome. Uh, okay, yeah, jealous now, sibling. the jealous sibling syndrome. Now, I, again, can, before... Go, on, so, go ahead. So you can say the jealous sibling syndrome, but who are the yes. siblings? Well, this is, this is what I'm going to quickly announce for you. The siblings okay. are... Sega Japan and Sega America. Now, Sega Japan... Both Sega. Both Both Sega, and this is where they went wrong. You see, as I said, the family, the unit, was Sega Enterprise. Or Enterprises. Okay, that's the big company. But underneath that, the two children were Sega Japan, run by um, Nakayama. Um, I really hope, because I haven't actually got his name in front of me at the moment. Um, yeah, run by Nakayama, and who essentially ran all of. He started life out in distribution of Sega and worked his way up the ranks and and became, I believe, it was president. But essentially, he ran both the Japan and the American arm, but could only be in one place at a time. So the American arm would have somebody who would run that part and would would work on the distribution to their market and the consoles and decisions and games and so on and so forth. Now, after the, the Master System didn't really make a dent in either market, the Western or the Eastern, the guy I've in charge... A of, of a, I've got a theory about that. Okay, okay. Well, let me just quickly round this bit off. So the guy in charge at the time was a guy called Katz. He was relinquished of his post of head of Sega America and replaced by a guy called Kalinsky. And he... Tom Kalinsky. Tom Kalinsky. And he made a number of very popular... Decisions are very uh, profitable decisions, and he gave Nakayama he gave a hat. He did, did he? <laughs> and Nakayama, who was infamous, look, look there's no other way of putting it. He ran Sega Japan like a Japanese company. You know, yeah. they're they're very tough, long working hours, very rigid, and there are alleged reports that he was both verbally and physically abusive to his staff members. But of course, to Sega America, who were propping up the whole company, he was very kind to them. He was very good. And that started a sibling rivalry with Sega Japan seeing 
Sega America as the favoured child didn't want to help them. They wanted to do things their own way. They didn't want, they wanted their own success. And all of a sudden, inside this company, you had two, two warring factions who were working against each other, it would seem, uh, and, in, and in conflict with each other. And that's the narrative that I found. It wasn't about this console being released and not being a success or this being... Because the simple fact is, with most technology, you can never guarantee it. And it doesn't... And all these talks about this system wasn't as powerful as that and that system was... Again, that doesn't really matter. The, the fact is, is that they were shooting themselves in the foot time and time again. The left arm and the right arm were working completely independently. And with the time that I've got today, I'm going to try and demonstrate that through the choices that were made from from Sega, how the Saturn would have no chance but to spectacularly fail. And just oh, very cool. quickly, what I'll do is I'll give you a little bit of history about how Sega came to be. And I'm not going to go right back to the beginning, uh, which, can, believe can it or not... Go on, go Gary, ahead, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Can I just say? Yeah. We, if you can go all the way back, but all you need to know, I think yeah. what you need to know, is Sega was a lot like uh, a lot of these other Japanese companies at the time, like Taito and Namcom and Capcom and Konami and Nintendo itself. They all started working and making arcade games, didn't they? Uh, yes. Before the, yeah. before the home correct, console, yeah. there was arcade games. Now, if you go back and look at some of Sega's first titles, they were, some of the stuff they were producing was amazing. They were like top of the range. They mm. produced Space Area, Super Hang-On, Outrun, uh, Afterburner, Shadow of the Beast, all these really amazingly graphical, fast playing. Oh, they, yeah. It's like, you know, you'd, you'd get in a machine and the machine would move. Like, super, hang on, you'd be riding a bike. They yeah. were terrific at making stuff. Nintendo also started in the arcades. Things yeah, like Donkey like, Kong and so on. So yeah, forth, Donkey yeah. Kong was their massive hit. They started mm. with, with Donkey Kong, but then they moved away from the, the arcade and started just making the Famicom. They could produce... Like they made, I mean, Donkey Kong from the Famicom, Mario Brothers, which is another arcade game. They made it from the Famicom. But Nintendo's arcade games were very basic, weren't mm. the best. So when they brought out the Famicom, it could easily do the arcade. But when uh, Sega brought out the Master System, mm. there's no way in hell it could do Space Area or Super Hang On or Outrun. Yeah. So, so if you've got the Master System, you go, well, this is not like the arcade. And they're going, well, we never said it was. You go, yeah, but Nintendo's looked like the, the, their arcade games. Well, this you're is like, interesting. Yeah, but Nintendo's arcade games are not really good, are they? They're not like <laughs> exactly. ours. Those are amazing. Well, it, well there's also a, a couple of points to that. So the original Master System wasn't called the Master System. Uh, and just to, to go back, so Daryl, you're, you're completely correct. All of these companies started in the coin-operated amusements in the arcades. And again... Probably sooner um, than maybe some anticipated was needed, but certainly faster than than Sega. Nintendo already moved into uh, the market for the the um, the home market, but most people believe that they got there before them. They didn't. They both released their consoles on the same day, uh, and that was, I believe, July the fifteenth, nineteen eighty three. And I'm not even looking at my notes there. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the original systems that they both released, and this was after the Atari crash and the 1982 recession in arcade gaming, so they had no choice but to move into the home gaming, home gaming system. At the time, you're, you're completely correct, 
uh, Sega was known for innovative games in the arcade world. And that's what they thought that they were going to bring that kudos, that name with them to the home gaming system. And the big difference being, one, you're absolutely right, Nintendo's games were simpler to make, but they were also making their own games as well. So it was easy. They didn't have third parties that they were having to convert from. They were making them themselves. The next thing, and the next problem, the first console released wasn't the Master System. It was the SG-1000. That's the first console, home console, that Sega released. And from what my research tells me, because I never played it myself, it's essentially a remodelled um, ColecoVision. Uh, oh, and, right. and, and what it doesn't do is it doesn't allow scrolling graphics. It doesn't allow doesn't. for... The, um, the change of environment, the things that Nintendo, the, the things yeah. that NES, the Famicom could do. So did so was the Master System, or the as we called it, the Mic 3, was that released the same day as Nintendo, or was this original system released the same no, day as the NES? No, this original system was released the same day as the NES. What? So were, yeah, I know, I know. They were a massively... A ColecoVision clone. ColecoVision is an awful computer. Yeah, and it was, was essentially, and that's that's all they did. They repackaged parts, they put it out there. Obviously, it wasn't working. They then tried uh, an addition to that. I don't think it was a CD-ROM, but there was an addition part, which is the Mark II, but that's not really that's nothing to really think about. The Mark III is the Master System. Then the Mark III came out right. first in Japan, made no splash whatsoever, barely touched anything. No. And I believe, if I'm right, the NEC... Uh, was either out or soon out. I know that the NEC well, the, was out. The, the PC range. engine. Yes, yeah, yeah. The PC engine was out at the same oh, time okay. as as yeah, uh, yeah. the Mar Mega Drive. Um, so 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 they released the Master System, repackaged it, or the M M the Mark III repackaged it as the Master System for the Western market. Right. Yeah. The problem they had the when they released the Mark III was it was a week after Super Mario Brothers Three was released. So again, <laughs> they made no splash in Japan. Yeah whatsoever and the reason I wanted to do a little bit of back history and I'm not going to go into all of it but just to let you know that most people think Sega is a Japanese company it is not both arms that the service games and the Gulf and Western that, that, that would become not Gulf and Western sorry um, Rosen uh, Enterprises that would become Sega were American they just happened to operate in Japan um, yeah. and and for them but they really were stuck to this Japan is our hub. Japan, if, if we can break Japan, we'll break everywhere. We'll break, the, you know, if, if we can land that yeah, yeah, market. Yeah. But they were never going to. They came out, the Master System was, I think it was two, three years after the NES. And, and, and by that point, Nintendo had, had solidified the market and, and had spread over to the uh, Western market as well. Now, the problem they also had with Sega at the time was that they didn't have any kind of mascots like a Mario or anything like that. There was no Sonic, you know, nothing like no. that. And what they what they had was a system that was kind of already behind the curve when it was released. So we we we're gonna, I suppose, just jump straight forward. Really, is they they had some hits on the Master System. It wasn't a complete bust, but it was never going to catch up with theirs. And this is where their opportunity came in. This is where Sega. Before the flops, this is where they had their hits. The Super Nintendo was years away, a good two or three years away. Yeah. And Sega had been running, as you mentioned quite rightly, their arcade systems. They were considered high technology at the top of the leaders in the in, in their oh, class because they were using uh, the 16-bit graphics in their in their arcade systems. So that then converts to what essentially becomes 
the Mega Drive, or certainly what's known as the Mega Drive in yeah. uh, in Japan, in Europe. But, also, but interestingly, for those listening to this in America, known as Genesis there because there was a company called Mega Drive uh, Data or Database, so they couldn't use that name. Um, so they, they pipped the biblical-sounding name Genesis uh, and originally boxed it with Altered Carbon. No, not Altered Carbon, Altered Beast. Sorry, so it was a... Altered Beast. Yeah, quite, quite old. But okay, so so as we get up to the Sega Mega Drive, as I said, all they had to compete with, they were bringing out a 16-bit console. They had the NEC, which, to be fair, was doing quite well in Japan, but had no exposure in the Western market whatsoever. So they had yeah, this the opportunity... Yeah, the PC Engine... Never got released in. No, no, never, never made it. No, no, don't believe it. Which was the which was the Turbo Graphics? The Turbo Graphics was. The turb the Turbo Graphics uh, could have been the NEC. Yes, I think that might be the the, NEC actually. Yeah, PC Engine is the Turbo Graphics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So, so the NEC was was causing problems in Japan, but not in the Western market. Now, to try and sum this this up as much as possible, because this isn't about the Mega Drive, it really is about Saturn, but I think you need to know this. Sega pulled a masterstroke during this time. You see, Nintendo, during that, that time they released the, the NES uncontested, essentially, they tied a lot of developers down to exclusivity contracts, meaning they could only make games for Nintendo. And if they broke that, they risked losing that relationship. And it also has to be said mm. that this is on a, con- this is on a, uh, a cartridge, so yes. not only did you have to pay Nintendo a licensing fee, but you also had to buy the cartridges from Nintendo as well. You couldn't just put it on a disc. So you oh, yeah. sent them your you sent them your software. They put it on a cartridge and then they sold you the cartridge. Yeah, exactly. And they had a stranglehold over it, and they could because oh, yeah, they owned ninety percent of the market share yes. at that at that stage. Yeah, oh yeah. Now this is where Sega came up with a masterstroke, and this was part of Kalinsky's thinking was, okay, if we can't get the development houses and we can't get the popular titles that come with them, then what we'll do instead is licensing. And they licensed sports stars and they licensed celebrities. So they had people like Joe Montana. They had Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. They had Evander Holyfield for boxing. And they had a little company that they got to help them out called Electronic Arts, who were on the verge of going bust, allegedly, uh, at the time. They weren't doing well financially. You know, like, and Sega needed somebody else with a Joe Montana game, and because they were already developing one, they went to EA. Now, that brought them something that the Nintendo didn't have, which was sports titles, which was recogni- rec- like their licensing uh, recognition that comes with it. it. allowed them to stand up, and they could also then start attracting that adult market, you know, with things like Mortal Kombat, you know, with, with the blood and, and stuff like that. And, of course, the other masterstroke that they pulled during this time was they put Sonic as an in-box um, add-on. It has to be said, okay, that basically a Nintendo of America basically just got Nintendo games from Japan and converted them to, for the Western audience. Yeah. Sega of America decided, right, we have to make something that's aimed specifically for the Western audience. We're not just going to take uh, Sega's games and change them. Mm. We're also going to bring our, our own games into the thing. And yes. Sonic, funny enough, it's a mix of the two. Sonic wasn't made just by 
uh, Sega of Japan. It was made by Sega of Japan with help and input from Sega of America to make him sort of more offend to a Western sort of audience. That's why he's cool for. That's why he wears sneakers for. Well, they ran a competition, didn't they, where where a fan drew Sonic, uh, and that's where they got okay. his design from. Yeah, originally he was like a rocky. They said he looked really ugly and he had all spikes and he wasn't as cool as he was now. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. when they went to make Sonic 2, the guys from Sonic, the Sonic group, came to America and made Sonic 2 in America. So that's where you get to the, the confluence of SOJ and SOA working together. Exactly. To make produce Sonic. What, which... Yes, produce Sonic. And also SOA, Sega America, also yeah. was able to to take stuff from Sega of Japan and aim it directly through advertising and through big ideas at the Western audience. While yeah. Nintendo of America just basically got the Japanese games, changed into changed into English and decided mm. to let the games talk for themselves. Go, well, this is one of the best games of Japan. So if we just translate it to England or in English and just aim yeah. it at America, of course it's going to do well, but never really aiming for an American audience, never really reading the American audience. You know what I mean? Just no, and this is, this is a problem that would rear its head again uh, on the Saturn. And we're not going to go into that, but when we talk about the kind of titles that were released and why, for example, when it was released in America with only six launch titles, there is a reason for that. And, and we will go, go into that when we look at, because the, there are a number of reasons why the Saturn works. But at the moment where we stand is the Mega Drive is working. They've, they, they are, they've taken over the American market. They've eaten they into hit the, the formula. Japanese market. They have really hit the formula. They've, they've got it right. Now here, as they say, like Icarus, they flew too close to the sun. You know, and yes. like all empires, at some point they have to fall. And this is really where it, it's a shame because... Through necessity, through this this stranglehold that, that Nintendo had on the licensing, things like that, it forced Sega to turn into a, a development house, a software house in their own right, which is why they were able to, to make things like, say, uh, like Sonic and Science Forth and work together. But unfortunately, through that success, that they they also started to try and, uh, what's the word? Believe their own hype that they could do no wrong. Yeah. And right, okay. but also because of that sibling rivalry that we talked about. Now you've got to remember that the Mega Drive alone was competing with the NEC. It was at, by this point outselling the NES, or, or certainly outselling the NES, but it wasn't firmly in number one spot in Japan. The Mega Drive in America was. You know, so this sibling rivalry then started to, to rear its head. And what you had was this conflict where Sega of uh, America wanted to to elongate the life cycle of the 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 Genesis, as they call it, the Mega Drive, rough, as long as possible. Whereas Sega of Japan were getting really jumpy and were getting really scared about what other companies were making, and they were getting really worried about being left behind. Because you've got to remember, Sega of Japan's whole method was that they were kings in in the arcade, that they built the best technology. Well, actually, one of the things I kind of skipped over a little bit, so I should cycle back to it, is one of the things that Kalinske did for the Mega Drive was move away from that, move away from talking about how they were the best in the arcades because he wanted it to, to be more inclusive than just those that went to an arcade. Sega of, a, Sega of Japan, they were worried about this. They were worried about being beaten technology-wise. And the first misstep that they made was getting freaked by the Jaguar uh, I forget what the full name is. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, Atari, the, the Atari Jaguar. 
the Atari, yeah, that's right, sorry, yeah, the Atari Jaguar, which was a, allegedly the first 64-bit console. And you also had things like, I think it was the 3PO. Um, 3DO. Like, yeah, the 3PO, sorry. Freudian slip there. Yeah, Freudian slip there. The the 3DO. So so this 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 invention, this this uh, introduction of CD-ROM technology, uh, of, of improved graphics, run rates, so on and so forth, was worrying Sega of Japan because in their mind, their whole model was built around being the best. They were the only ones with a 16-bit console. They were the best. And all of a sudden, so that sprung off into the Sega CD for the American audience or the Mega CD for anybody else, which was not an unmitigated disaster, but like all things in Sega's unfortunate track record, it was another example of them not committing to a cause, not sticking to something. So they did the Sega CD, that stretched their resources, that stretched their development uh, internal resources as well as what third parties could do because they found it difficult to um, to develop for it. Then comes the big argument. Sega of, um, of Japan wanted to launch Saturn. They wanted to be the first to launch a 32-bit CD-ROM console, especially as they were hearing that the Super Nintendo, the Super Famicom that was now released, was going to be adding a CD, CD-ROM functionality through their partnership with Sony and PlayStation, or certainly that's the way it looked. Yeah. I believe they went with Philips in the end, if my memory serves me correctly. So and, Nintendo uh, or...? Yeah, Nintendo. I think they went with Philips and did a couple of uh, exclusive games with them that are, that are meant to be terrible. They did, they did make a CD. But they Instead of making it themselves, they just allowed them to license some of their, yeah. their properties, their, their characters. There is a... Uh, Mario is missing, I think, where you play Luigi and the two Zelda games. Okay, out. okay. So, so, so yeah, the, uh, I haven't misremembered the Philips, it then. <laughs> on the Philips CDI, and they are some of the most trashiest games. They're not made by Nintendo. They just feature Nintendo characters. That's right. Yeah. So, so this again, this was another thing that scared um, Sega Japan, and they looked at it and they were like, okay. So they made the Sega CD. wasn't a complete disaster because. Like they had some successes with it, but of course it was not a standalone console, and they were worried about their competitors beating them to it. So they start. They wanted to work on on the Saturn. Kalinsky didn't feel that 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 was the right time. He felt there was still life in the Genesis, that was was number one console in America. Although of course it was the third console, I think at that point, um, in Japan. So yeah. from his side of it, he didn't want to, to go back in and he didn't think they were ready, you know. And against his wishes, they began the work. And here's two other ironic mistakes, if you like. In preparation for this this system, he met with a little company that goes by the name of uh, SGI, okay. who had a chip that they wanted to... He thought the chip was great. He thought it would be brilliant for the next console took it to Sega yeah. Japan, and they said, no, it's too big, it'll take up too much space, it'd be cumbersome, so on and so forth. They declined it. So Gary, remember, this what is... does, uh, Gary, what yeah. does SGI stand for? Uh, I have not got it in front of me. Cinephone <laughs> graphics, who that... would go on yeah. to make nah, they would go on to for the Nintendo Jurassic system. Park. Well, oh yeah, they might have done <laughs> no, they, they, that. They, chip, they, they... 
that chip. I didn't want to get it wrong because of when I got it wrong with id, because I didn't have the name yeah. directly in front of me. I was like, right, I'm just not going. I'm just going to stick with SGI. But yeah, so with Silicon Graphics Interactive, I believe. Yeah. Now, do you know who they but sold that that chip to? Yeah, Nintendo. Nintendo. They sold it the to Ultra Nintendo. 60, the Ultra uh, 64, as it was called at the time. Yeah, and they used and it they, for the 64. Do you know who told them to sell it to the uh, to Nintendo? Sega of America. They did. Tom Kalinsky Tom told them to go see a little company beginning this with is N. Little, yeah, a little sidetrack here. Yeah, and then, then the here. second... Oh, sorry, go, on, go ahead with your sidetrack. Right, so do you know Donkey Kong Country? I do, yeah, yeah, the game, yeah. That came out on the uh, that came out on the SNES, one of the last games on the SNES. All their graphics from that were pre-rendered using SGI graphics. Graphics. They pre-rendered all the animation on an SGI, and then they took those frames and put them on the put them on the Nintendo SNES. That's why they look so good for. Yeah, and they do and look good. So, yeah, so when someone was shown in Nintendo Nintendo of America the graphics, they said, "Oh man, that's amazing! Is that how good the N sixty four is going to look?" And they went, "No, that's the SNES." Wow, <laughs> that's a it's a pretty powerful story. Oh, it's a pretty powerful story, but. Actually, I mean, it does look. It is a great looking game. I mean, even today, it still looks great. <laughs> it's a, it's amazing that game was made on the on the SNES. <laughs> but so, as you can tell, though, yeah. but with things like that, Sega of Japan were, were were getting scared. The next big mistake that they made is that, as we mentioned, Nintendo was working with a little known company called Sony uh, on a, a CD-ROM based console project that would later be known as PlayStation. What many people don't know is Sega were also in talks with them, and this was after Nintendo pulled the plug. A deal was agreed between Sega that they would halve the cost of development between the two of them, and they would each take a 100% license fee from whatever titles they created on the console. The deal was agreed with Sony, the deal was agreed with Sega of America. They took it to Sega of Japan, and they said no. And ultimately, what two consoles would bring about the downfall of the Saturn? The PlayStation and the Nintendo 64. So it is quite serendipitous, really, how, how little, these things came to I be. Have... Go on, sorry. Can I have another little aside, quickly? Yeah, yeah, always. Um, they actually did make a Nintendo PlayStation. Did you know that? Well, they, they, they made a concept uh, of it. I don't believe it works, though, um, from, from it, my understanding. It sold. Oh, go on, did it? In this March of this year, the a super rare prototype sold yeah. for twenty three hundred thirty thousand dollars, oh, or wow. two hundred thirty thousand pound. Wow. So there actually does exist a Nintendo PlayStation. Well, there I don't you know go. if it works. No, <laughs> but there, so... no I don't know. I don't know. If so it both works. so so both so so Nintendo and uh, Sega really, if one of them would have worked with PlayStation, they would have been. I mean, yeah. On board, well, the reason but both from that... not. The, Allegedly, that neither of them did was they were worried about uh, Sony taking a, a front seat uh, in the marketplace and people seeing it as more of a Sony console than a Nintendo or a Sega console, which in hindsight, you know, was obviously uh, shooting themselves in the foot anyway. But they weren't to know that Sony were going to go out and do it themselves. And they'd been up against people like Philips. They'd been up against a, a number of different companies throughout the years who had tried to get into the home market and it hadn't worked, you know, and, and 
as I said, hindsight is is twenty twenty, but it is serendipitous. Oh, yeah, it is serendipitous that here they were. They were doing amazing because of these sports licenses, because of being the most technology technologically advanced. Their pricing point on the original Mega Drive. The first thing Kalinsky did was brought the pricing down and gave you Sonic in the box, so it was competitive. They made all the right moves when they came to the Saturn. As I said, they gave away this technology, the chip that went into the N64, the CD-ROM that would, would be used by Sony. They, they created their own competition, all out of fear. Now, before we jump into the Saturn, the last real big mistake they made that is pre-Saturn, Mega Drive-related, Genesis-related, was the 32X. So the CD, the Mega CD, Sega CD, didn't do great as it was. Klinsky did not feel they were ready to move the 32-bit and didn't feel that CD-ROM technology was ready. He wanted to prolong the Mega Drive life cycle. So they had come up with an agreement with Sega Japan, apparently, to um, build the 32X, which was codenamed Project Mars. Sega Japan had no intention of doing this and went straight off and worked on the Saturn project name Project Saturn, <laughs> just in case um, that one wasn't clear. And what do we have um, then? Can I just dispute it? According to the book Console Wars, which mm. we discussed earlier, it was going to be yeah. a documentary series, which was going to be uh, South by Southwest. But yeah. obviously South by Southwest has been cancelled. So yeah. I, don't, I haven't really looked it up to see what's happened with that. But in that book, Kalinsky mm. says that he didn't want anything to do with the 32X. He thought it was a mistake from the past. He thinks they should have just been concentrating on purely the Mega Drive and trying to beat Nintendo because Nintendo had started rising back up with like things like Donkey Kong Country. They were starting to pull ahead again. And he yes. thought it was a waste of time spending all that time on the on the uh, 32X. Yes and, and then, no. I think and then he found a... out... Go, on, go ahead. And then he found out that uh, Sega of Japan had decided, yeah, he was probably right, but then they lumped him with it and went, well, you sort it out, you fix it. Yeah, so I think there's probably a little bit of revisionist history in there from Tom Kalinske. It, it, it does seem to be... Now, I've looked at multiple sources, and it does seem that his story of him not wanting to do the Saturn when they did it is correct. And the story of him not even wanting to do the 32X in some ways is correct. But it would seem that he felt the 32X was a better move at that time, because you've got to look at the release times as well, which I'll, I'll shortly get onto. He felt it was better to extend the life cycle of the, the Mega Drive, the Genesis, than it was to come out with the next generation of consoles. I am in agreement with you that I don't believe he wanted to do the 32X, but for him, it was better to do that than it was to do the Saturn. What he could not have known was that Sega of Japan were going to keep working on the Saturn and they were going to release, after Sega of America ploughed $10 million into marketing the uh, the 32X, which was an add-on for the Mega Drive. It was not a standalone console. They released it one month beforehand. The Saturn was released a month in Japan, a month before the 32X came out, November 1994. And by May of 1995, largely in part because they were scared about what PlayStation was about to announce at E3, Kalinsky was forced by Sega of Japan to announce the immediate launch. So no marketing, no promotion, no distribution channel set up. He was forced to announce the immediate launch 
of the Sega Saturn in the Western market. And also, they didn't have enough units, did they, for the Western market to provide no. all they said they were going to do. So they'd have to go send it out to Toys of Us and uh, Walmart, which was the biggest suppliers, and mm. then screw over all the little game guys and say, oh, well, yeah. you can't have one because we've uh, sent them all to... Who then refused to stock Sega products. So it really shot them in the foot. And here's the other big problem they had. And, the, and this is all coming from just this one announcement. Is So not only did they, they announce with no promotion... They announced with no distribution set up. They also announced the pricing point, if, if again, if memory serves me right, of $399. Who came on after them at E3? Sony. What did Sony do? Announced a console of the same power, allegedly, that was going to be sold for $299. So $100 cheaper. And if we have learned anything throughout the history of consoles, unless you're a Nintendo, the cheapest is always going to win. You know, wherever the cheapest mm -hmm. console is, whatever's easiest to get on people's uh, tables at home will ultimately win out. So so even before... Also, we have to say as well that Sony also copied Sega's playbook nearly word for word. They aimed it at a more adult audience. Yep. I mean, there was like a lot of... So they added it, like, especially in the UK, they added it as, uh, aimed it at like a clubbing audience. They got left field and... Uh, people like that to come and do the music. They had Wipeout, which was very high-tech, and they had all dance music and things like that. Mm. They they got EA on board and gave them a lesser royalty than Sega was giving them, which is what Sega did to get EA in the first place. All these yeah. things, they just saw what Sega America was doing, go, right, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it better because we're Sony and we have got billions and billions to chuck at this. We are going to yeah. win. No one's going to stop us. Do you know what's quite interesting about that observation you've made? When I was doing my research, so Sega never made a right step unless they were able to copy a Nintendo playbook, so to speak. So, yes, the Western market was something different, but in they, they hadn't done uh, inbox games before, the, the pricing structure, the promotion, so on and so forth. They, they would learn that from Nintendo, from the way that they released the NES, <coughs> from the way that they released the Super Nintendo or the Famicom, Super Famicom. When they had to go out on their own, they made one misstep after the other after the other. And, and you're right, really, the only thing that Sega consistently got right was their demographic, was their target audience. They realised that nobody's shifting Nintendo from that, that child audience, from that, that young audience. And it started with the Mega Drive, and then PlayStation looked at that and went, that's how we're going to market the, the PlayStation. It, has, it, was it the also cool has console. to be... Yeah, it always has to be said that little kids like like things that the bigger kids like. So if you aim something at a bigger kid, a little kid's instantly going to want that because they want to be a big kid. What kid wants to be, do you know what I mean? No, like, absolutely. If, you aim, if you're aiming at a kid's market, you're not actually aiming at a kid's market. You're aiming at the families, the, 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 the dads and the mums of the kids' market, really. Yeah. I mean, you're saying to them, this is going to be all right. We make games for your children so you don't have to worry. Sega mm. didn't say that. Sega advertised to the children and said, no, you you may be like a six-year-old, but you want to be a 20-year-old, didn't you? You want to be cool. You want to be playing Sonic. You don't want to be a little child. <laughs> exactly. And look, the the thing is, just to kind of restock as we, we start to, to bring it into the more Saturn-related then conclusion part of, of the episode, as we as we look at this, what have we, we kind of learned from it or, or what are we learning prior to the, the, the system coming out? Well, we're learning that 
the two arms, Sega of Japan and Sega of America, were working completely independently of each other. And when they worked together, they had smash hits like the Mega Drive and like Sonic. Working independently, you've got the 32X and you've got the Sega Saturn. And then you have a rushed launch. Now let's talk about the actual Saturn itself, the system. It was a 32-bit system. And from what I can tell, doesn't seem as if it was that inferior, if inferior at all, to the PlayStation. Of course, it was inferior to the N64, but certainly on spec-wise, it was there. But here's the problem. Or should I read a direct quote? Project Saturn was, by most accounts, an inelegant, overly complex jumble of mostly stock parts assembled on a large and expensive-to-manufacture board. Add two CPUs, two graphic chips, and several other processors, none of which were designed to work together. So essentially, what we saw here was that the two arms weren't working together. And with the Saturn releasing before the 32X even hit the marketplace, confidence in their products, confidence that people were going to spend $400. This was the Saturn's launch price, and this was in 1995. Confidence that consumers could spend that money and it would be invested in a console that would be around for years, like the NES, like the Super Nintendo, was eroded. And that was eroded further, as I said, by things like the Sega CD, other ventures like they did Sega uh, LCD glasses that gave you 3D vision. There was a lot of, of misfires. So when we actually came to everything prior to the launch of the Saturn, it didn't matter what the specs were. It didn't even matter that it was difficult for developers to work on it. They'd lost a lot of that, that goodwill, a lot of that clout that they had in the marketplace and losing people like EA to Sony uh, and, and misfires like that was only really furthering the, the problems that they had. And one of the big problems that they had was that upon releasing it, they mainly focused on the arcade games, so things like Virtual Fighter, Virtual Racer. And really, when it came to the American launch, Kalinsky wanted at least 20 titles. Well, because the the titles were, were a lot RPGs or the arcade-style games that he didn't feel was resonating with, with customers anymore. He stripped that back to only six that he thought would work in the Western market. And those six were all you got for, for quite a while as, as others caught up. But most importantly, there was no Sonic game. So there was no EA games, there was no sports games, there was no Sonic games. There was nothing in the Saturn that made the Mega Drive a success. And you couldn't even look at the technological prowess because when the Mega Drive came out, it stood alone as the only 16-bit console, certainly the only 16-bit console worth talking about. Yet, they came out and they launched alongside the PlayStation. So not only were they not technologically superior anymore, they were also more expensive. And they didn't have the library that Sony had. And they had Nintendo staring around the corner with the N64, as well as having to compete with the NEC still. And unfortunately, this would lead to Tom Kalinske departing Sega in 1996, where he would go on to be replaced with the company's COO, Bernard Stoller, who, despite the name I just realised, Stoller, 
had been stolen from Sony. And uh, he he actually was quite uh, influential uh, in bringing EA over to Sony from Sega. He was uh, influential in a, a lot of the decisions that, that Sony had made and PlayStation had made that, that proved to be successful. And the first thing he did when he came in and he looked at the Saturn and he realised that essentially it was a sinking ship. And what he did next is what no COO should do and certainly I don't think anybody, any business class is going to come in and do this. He came in and said that Sega's future wasn't the Saturn. In 1998, only two, four years since its release, consumers were yet again hearing that there's going to be another new Sega console. All in a time when they had still not had a Sonic for the Saturn. In a time when people maybe had made that choice two years ago, PlayStation or Saturn, they went with the Saturn and here it was the PlayStation. There was no announcement of a PlayStation 2. You know, that this was... It was really... And, and as I said, we look at the Saturn and we, we're trying to question, well, why? Why did it, it flop? And it really, the, 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 the answer is overwhelmingly, time and time again, that the Saturn flopped because the left arm didn't know what the right arm was doing. And, and the left arm was jealous of any success the right arm got. And ultimately, this led to a console being released that had very limited games. It didn't have the type of games that had been successful previously. It allowed a competitor into a marketplace who stole their playbook, you know, move for move. And then yet again, Sega jumped the gun too early. They didn't stick with the Saturn. They didn't say, you know what? I don't think, I think Dreamcast come out in 99, 2000, rather than sticking with the Saturn until... They'd seen some form of life cycle uh, seen through. They jumped the gun and they headed over to to the Dreamcast. So all in all, the, the, the takeaway from this is that it was not the Saturn that flopped. It was Sega that flopped. The Dreamcast was head and shoulders above. They were back to what the ethos was being the best, technologically speaking, being the best, but it didn't matter the confidence was gone and that console in itself lasted 18 months until it was drawn down now we could talk about some of the games that were released on the saturn some of the the, the issues that they had with it but ultimately you only have to look at really the type of games not the performance of the games and i think if you want to pinpoint why the saturn didn't recoup its money, even though historically it is the best-selling Sega console, certainly in Japan, not outselling the Mega Drive worldwide, of course. But you have to look at it and say, well, it's because they went back to producing arcade games in a time when companies like Square, I think it might have been Square Soft at the time, obviously Square Enix now, were releasing games like Final Fantasy, these scrolling story-based games that gave you hours of, of gameplay. You had the EA licenses that, that had driven the Mega Drive to success that it, it received was now on the PlayStation. And there were no sports titles to speak of, no licensed sports titles on the Saturn. And there was no mascots. 
There was no Sonic. There was no Alex the Kid. They released a Bugs game. Uh, funny enough, one that Steven Spielberg was quoted as saying would be the game that would turn around the Saturn's fortunes. That failed as well. Ultimately, consumers were looking at the Saturn saying, well, there's a PlayStation around the corner. And if we buy your Saturn, based on your track record, we're either going to get shoved with loaded accessories or it's going to be replaced with something new in a couple of years. And I said to you at the start of this that really it's a story of, of rivalry between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, and that's they allowed their competitors a footing. They shot themselves in the foot. They flew too close to the sun. And it's got to be said, it's, it was a shame because I grew up with Mega Drive. You know, that's, that's, that was my first console, you know, that I played religiously. And I remember the Saturn. And funny enough, I remember buying a PlayStation because I played the Saturn once and I was that disappointed that I bought a PlayStation that I'd never even played, you know. And, and I think for me, we, we could do a far bigger and deeper dive, you know, into the games themselves, what worked, what didn't, and, you know, why it was that it was so difficult to develop on the software and, you know, the, the movements in of Stoller or, or Kaminsky and how these all came to play. But I think the, the one takeaway that I wanted to try and put this all into a succinct sentence and, and kind of look at how can I really just just surmise what happened here in the best way possible. And I think the way in which I was able to do that was by saying that Sega threw as much pasta at the wall as they could to see what would stick. And ultimately, some of it did, but a lot of it didn't. And they never stuck around to see if any of it had a second chance. So for me, absolutely, as the Saturn as a console was a flop. Maybe not if you're looking at Sega Japan's numbers, but ultimately it led to the downfall of what had been an institution by that point in Sega, and one in which I don't believe they'll ever truly recover. They'll never go to the heights they once were. And with that in mind... That's the end of Top of the Flops this week. And that was your story about how the Sega Saturn failed, but really it was all about how Sega got it so wrong from being on top to then being on the bottom in no time at all. So it's until next week, it's goodbye from me. And because Daryl's gone silent, it's goodbye from him. Thanks for listening.